Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Severiam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And as of yesterday, um, a contributing writer to Barry Weiss's Substack, which I am very happy about. Aaron, how are you doing? I guess I guess uh, you're tripping. Well, that, yeah, well, so so I had this big piece come out at the time of this recording about woke law and how the things at Yale Law School are not staying at Yale Law School, but are instead cannibalizing the entire legal system. And that's been fun to watch the reaction to. And it tangentially relates to our topic today, which is about the word about law. <laughs> That's well, which is about which is about which is about prisons, right? Well, you know, the, the the nature of the legal system will determine ultimately who goes to prison. And Charles, why don't you why don't you talk about what we're interested in today vis-a-vis prisons? Yeah, you know, I think prisons as an American institution are one of the it's the, one of the highest ratios of how much they're discussed to how little they are understood that, you know, we, we have sort of big abstract concepts in mind when we talk about prisons. We say uh, America incarcerates a lot of people more than other developed countries. Uh, American prisons are known for their disorder and danger. Um, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, in 2019 alone, in the most recent year, there are 300 suicides, 250 drug ODs, 140 homicides in American prisons. And that's been steadily increasing over the past 20 years, depending on how you count. And there's a great deal of dispute about it. America's prisons turn out a lot of crime. There are high recidivism rates, although there's a lot of debate about how high the recidivism rates actually are. You know, we, we, we sort of have a picture of prisons that's a product both of these sort of grim statistics, but also of popular representation of them in the media. There's much more about impressions, much more about sort of Either, either a revulsion at their conditions, or their, or or a sense that they're, you know, just in some way. Then we do about thinking about how prisons actually work, how prisons are actually governed, how what what makes them run day to day. So, you know, that that's a question that our guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about. Before we get to him, I guess I want to ask Aaron, what are your, what are you, what are you going to this conversation interested in? I am interested in the way that prison gangs develop their own written constitutions and specifically what those constitutions tell us about kind of state of nature, social contract theories of the state and of legitimacy and the degree to which that kind of model that is that is very central to Western modern political theory really is grounded in the actual you know, the empirically accurate claims about how human beings in a quasi state of nature will operate. I mean, we'll get to this in a minute, but there are, in fact, a lot of similarities between how prison gangs kind of organically come up with their own internal governance structures, what that looks like at the end, and between sort of what modern Weberian states look like. So I'm interested in exploring the implications of that very broadly. But with that, Charles, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, well, and I just to just to sort of segue with my own thoughts, you know, I think what you're saying is you're interested in what prisons can tell us about society as a whole, what sort of the experience of governance in prisons tells mm-hmm. us about how governance works in general. I am in some sense interested in the opposite, the obverse, which is sort of thinking about 
how to, what can, what can theory of governance in general tell us about prisons in particular, how to make prisons run mm-hmm. better, whether, whether the sort of status quo in American prisons is incidental or necessary to their governance, whether we can change that governance structure, whether in short, it's possible to make our prisons more orderly, more productive, better for recidivism, whatever metric you want to use, and what we can learn from the political theory of prisons to get there. So it's, you know, I think two different conversations, but they're mm-hmm. related. A good person to have this conversation with is, is our guest, Professor David Scarbeck, is an associate professor of political science at Brown University and president of the Public Choice Society. His research often focuses on the organization of informal extra-legal institutions like prison gangs, organized crime. He's the author of several books, most recently, The Puzzle of Prison Order. David, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be in conversation with you. So, so we like to open with sort of a, a little bit of provocation for our guests. A lot of your work focuses on how criminal organizations or extra legal organizations self-govern, how gangs govern themselves, how prisoners govern themselves. One line of argument is that such systems aren't really that different from formal states, that there's not really that much difference between how the mafia runs itself and how constitutional liberal democratic governments run themselves. The same basic kind of thing. Do you agree or disagree? I think it's useful to look at it through different lens. And so it's not just one view is, is productive. So there's a long literature studying uh, mafias by people like Federico Varese and Diego Gambetta, who argue that what's substantively unique and important about organized crime groups and mafias in particular is a desire to control the supply of protection in an area. And that sounds dangerously close to Weber's definition of the state, right? Is having a monopoly mm-hmm. on the legitimate use of coercion in a region. And I think we see similar dynamics there in that both states and mafias require uh, control of violence violence and credible threats of violence in order to, to accomplish the ends that they have. So in those ways, I think it's very productive to view gangs as sort of quasi-governments. It leaves out a lot. We typically think of states as needing legitimacy and accountability and institution you know, embedded in a broader set of institutions and things like the rule of law. Each one of those things are pretty robustly absent in the world of mafias and organized crime groups. And so leaving out that aspect, I think, uh, marks a a great departure between organized crime groups uh, and states. Could could I jump in there quickly? So so you say that those things are absent, but are they absent in the are they absent in the sense that just, you know, they're not legitimate by our standards or are they not even legitimate by their member standards? Because one thing that you you say in some of your work is that members of prison gangs often swear like an oath of allegiance to a constitution and the prison gang leaders will like appeal to the constitution and say, you know, this is for your benefit. And that kind of thing to me does sound kind of like, you know, the beginnings of some rule of law and some kind of, you know, Vivarian concept of legitimacy. So, so could you unpack this a little more? Yeah, I'd say that you're right, that there's probably something more like a spectrum here and yeah. that gangs do invest in written constitutions. There's often an opting into their rule structure, although that's certainly not always the case. 
By their own perspective, many people view gangs as legitimate actors or play a valuable role. However, there's plenty of disagreement uh, amongst prisoners who work alongside or, mm-hmm. or work with, within gangs who don't see them as even following the rules and constitutions that they say is what constrains and binds them. More generally, there's nothing like a Supreme Court, for example, to check the power of gangs in the prison context. And so when we think about sort of where's the accountability that states come get, you know, where, where do we where do we think the legitimacy mm-hmm. comes from? It's from the accountability. And that's sort of essentially absent in, in the prison context entirely. The rules that they have are also, you know, inconsistent with what we think of, of the rule of law in the sense that there are certain types of prisoners who are excluded from the community, who are assaulted mm-hmm. for reasons uh, that are often outside of their control. And these people are not on a sort of equal footing with other people within the prison setting. That seems to be an important departure. Right. Now, if we look at early states, early states and primitive states and sort of pre-modern states look a lot like these gangs. So the farther back in time mm-hmm. you go in places with less political development, the sort of states in existence are going to look a lot more like maybe prison gangs than sort of the states that we most admire and aim for today. Can I just ask one quick clarifying follow-up question? You mentioned that you know, there's there's not kind of an independent judiciary to interpret sort of the, the rules of the Constitution. So so to whom in the gang hierarchy does interpretation fall to? Is it just the executive or is there some other kind of body that's that's been set up? I think that there the leaders within particular prisons have you know an important amount of uh, discretion. At one point in California, and we need to sort of clarify where we're talking about, but in California case, the highest ranked members of prison gangs were often incarcerated at Pelican Bay and had a lot of influence in deciding whether certain choices, a certain discretion was used in a way that was sort of appropriate or not. And so in that sense, you know, at one point in time, those people might be considered something along those lines. Yeah, so let me um, let me just sort of ground the conversation a little bit. Your first book, The Social Order of the Underworld, is about naively Americans know that prison gangs run American prisons to a great extent, but they don't really know what that means. And I think it is in part an exploration of what that means. So can you sort of set the stage for us a little bit of the emergence of the prison gang and sort of how it takes up what how it takes up its dominant position today and what that position looks like on the ground, how that, you know, what the, what the day-to-day experience of gang rule looks like? Sure. So, you know, in many prison systems in the United States today, places like especially like California and Texas, the big prison systems, gangs articulate a set of rules that often apply to all members of the of the prisoner community that touch on just about every aspect of a prisoner's life in terms of when you get up, where you can eat, who you can socialize with, when you can go to bed, when, when you have to be quiet at night. They as well regulate or govern the illicit economy in certain prisons, as well as being participants and actors in those things. And depending on the prison, prisoners often say that these gangs have a very dominant influence and effect on the everyday life of a prison. So in some places, these prison gangs are really important. What I found interesting doing my work is that prison gangs haven't always existed. In California, prisons existed there for more than 100 years without anything like the sort of racially segregated, highly centralized gangs that that are active in, in prisons there today. And so in my first book, I try to understand that historical and then eventually spatial variation and where prison gangs are more likely to be active, more likely to have an influence. And the argument that 
I developed eventually was to look at how did prisoners govern their relationships before gangs existed? Because I'm going to make an argument that gangs provide governance in, in important ways. So what did prisoners do? How, who did they rely on when there were no gangs there? And what I found through a variety of different types of evidence is that there was a system of informal norms that was highly agreed upon and followed pretty effectively. And prisoners themselves often called this the convict code. And it was a basic set of principles for how sort of prisoners in good standing should interact with people. You don't snitch on people, don't steal, don't mm -hmm. complain, don't lie. Following those rules would put you in good standing and in doing so make you more comfortable, make you safer. Uh, deviation from those things would sort of leave you with no one to support you and maybe make you in a more dangerous situation. And so people could either choose to follow the convict code or not, and they could choose to either punish uh, violations of the of the norms or not. And I argue that the system was actually fairly effective given available alternatives, because in in this time period, the prisons in California were pretty small. The total population was pretty small. And that makes these sort of informal or what in the book I call decentralized mechanisms really effective because in small prison populations, everyone knows your reputation. So you have an incentive to try to keep it in good standing. Um, if people are gossiping about you, it hurts because everybody knows who you are. When you're ostracized in small prisons, it's especially painful because there's not other groups of people that you can go and interact with instead. So in small prison populations, these sort of informal norms work really well. They don't require a lot of resources. They don't require collective action for the most part, and, and they work. So my argument in the book, though, is that starting in the late 1950s and 60s, the size of the prison population in California starts to grow. And with mass incarceration and the takeoff in prisoners in the 1980s, the ability to rely on these decentralized norms just isn't going to work anymore. Nobody knows other people's reputation, so that's not an incentive for them to behave in particular ways. If you ostracize someone, there's thousands of other people you can interact with. And in the face of the failure of this norm-based system, there's an emergence of violence. There's an increase in rioting and stabbings. And this is a time period in the 1960s in California when prison gangs very first, for the first time, form. And they're responding to chaos and violence by creating these more centralized groups that have explicit roles for creating rules, monitoring the violation of rules, and enforcing punishments against people who violate those rules. Once these gangs exist, uh, there's also an incentive for other people to form gangs in the response to that. So there's a sort of a strategic interaction that's happening as well. But I think that helps explain the historical variation of why gangs are important today, but weren't before for many years. It also explains why gangs are so prominent in the biggest prison systems and are least important in, on average or tend to be in the smaller prison system. So that's a sort of theory of gangs providing governance. And they're the optimal ones to do that when you can't rely on either officials or these sort of informal systems of norms. One question is, once, once we go beyond these informal norms, you mentioned these coordination and informational problems, but do the new kind of constitutions that these organizations set up, do they then kind of enshrine similar norms, albeit with much more of an enforcement mechanism, or is there a change in what the kind of substantive prison morality actually is once the constitutions come about? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and for the most part, they're 
you know, they're systematizing the same prevailing desires and interests that existed mm-hmm. earlier, which is regulation of sound and smells, regulation of space and property. And the gangs are are providing rules to to new new prisoners, telling them basically to follow these rules and saying, if you don't, we're mm-hmm. going to specifically punish you. They also, of course, because there's a new organization and one that plays a role in 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 recruiting and wielding power. Part of these new constitutions isn't just the rules that all people are supposed to follow, but there are constitutional rules in the sense of rules about how are we constituted? How are we going to make rules about the rules that we make? And what is the process when we have disagreements over those things? And so, you know, you brought up the sort of analogy and the question of how productive it is with states. You know, one thing that we see in gangs that is, I think, very much echoes what we see in the Federalist Papers in Madison, which is this principle is that, you know, the fundamental problem of political economy is how do we empower a state such that it protects our rights, but constrain its use of power so it doesn't use that power to violate our rights. That's like the fundamental problem of political Mm -hmm. development. And it's one based on, you know, my reading of their documents, it is one problem faced by and sometimes successfully addressed by gangs is that they recognize that if we want people to be a part of these gangs and we want to have this capacity to use violence, we need to engender some protections and support for people who are going to be a part of that. And so so that whole set of rules that was unnecessary because in the former area, the former era, there wasn't this sort of coercive entity that existed in the as as they do in the in the gang era. Yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the interesting implications there. I at, at the beginning in the in the introduction, I talked about the level of violence in American prisons, and it almost seems like if you have a theory of governance in which uh, the prison gang is keeping the peace, is serving the function of a ruling body, that 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 violence is a necessary part of you know of minimizing violence and making civil society such as is possible within the prison possible. Does that is 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 that right? Is it is it good to understand the prison gang as something that's keeping the peace and that violence is part of keeping the peace or is it a spillover of a lack of governance more generally what's what's going on there how do you explain the high levels of violence in american prisons well so in we'd have to compare statistics but my understanding based on a book called prison state that violence in prisons has been falling since the 1970s pretty dramatically i quote a statistic which is the homicide rate in state prisons fell something like 95 percent between 1973 and 2003. There's other data. It's it's not as systematic or universal as we like, but showing that assault rates are down. There's survey evidence showing that a large portion of people feel as safe or safer in prisons than they did on the street. So I'm actually not necessarily convinced that prisons are becoming more violent over over this period. That's not to say that gangs are the direct cause of a decline in violence. We see gangs trying to increase safety for their members. But as mentioned, there's a there's an effect where the stronger one get, gang becomes to protect themselves, they become more of a threat to others. There are battles for control of underground economies in prisons that are very much driven by gangs. But what we don't see in the data is that when gangs emerge and become dominant, that violence is tracking along with that. So I think that that evidence doesn't tell us that gangs reduce violence in prisons, but it seems to weigh pretty heavily against the hypothesis that gangs form to promote violence, which is a sort of narrative advance often by prison officials. Yeah, I mean, what I can what I can say is that we've seen an increase in homicide in prisons over the past 10 years, but that is not necessarily I, I would not be surprised if that was down relative to the 1970s in the aggregate. Um, but I guess I guess, you know, the 
the issue question. So, so your your most recent book that I alluded to, the Puzzle of Prison Order, looks at order and governance in a variety of prison systems across time and place. So, you look at order and governance in South American prisons. You look at order and governance in Civil War prisoner camps. One of the sort of interesting examples you talk about is, I think, in is it Norway or Sweden? That's Scandinavian Norwegian prisons, which are very you you sort of characterize as high formal order that that there's a lot of order imposed by the prison guards by the prison staff on relatively small prisons and as a result they're fairly peaceable places that you know everything we sort of say about how nice and cool uh swedish prisons are isn't part of byproduct of their capacity for self-governance so i guess i wonder by analogy why in america is so much day-to-day rule done by gangs rather than by the formal system? Like, how do you get to that place? Yeah, I I think that's one of the reasons it's useful to think from a comparative perspective is it allows us to sort of ask these questions that you you can't really address if you're focused on a single prison system. So if we look at the quality of official governance in, let's just say, Nordic countries, there's a strikingly different picture in a few ways. One is that their prisons are very, very small by American standards, Uh, something like 60 to 80 people per facility compared to often thousands of people in California. There's also a ton of prison staff in Nordic prisons. There's a ratio of essentially one prison worker to every person incarcerated there. In California, that number is way different. There's far fewer staff. So presumably they have less influence, power, control over prisoners. There's a lot of resources available in Nordic prisons. There's a lot of programming that provides you know, services and resources to people who are incarcerated there. And so the argument I think we learned from looking at the Nordic system is that they have very small prison, they have very well-resourced prisons. And so prisoners are not wanting for so many things like they often are in Western or Latin American prisons. So they have less demand to gain access to the underground economy or to additional resources. There's more effective administration in these facilities. The the correctional staff there tend to be trained much more often, uh, trained for a longer period, uh, well-paid, and uh, working in a prison is seen as, as a sort of civically minded task, like maybe a public school teacher is here in this country. And then the, the governance. They're very social. similar roles. Yeah. Well, they're, <laughs> they're viewed in, you know, they're viewed as a, as a good job, an honorable and civic minded job to do. And so none of those things are true of the California experience where Ooh. prisoners lack resources much more substantially. The administration of facilities is more difficult in, in part because of how large the prison populations are. And so the Nordic prison system is sort of over-determined, but the quality of official governance is really, really high. So it's not obvious that prisoners themselves need to reproduce those governance efforts. Mm-hmm. And the prison populations are really small and homogenous and often come with, you know, sort of dense pre-prison social networks. And so they don't need the structure and the costs of gangs to provide governance on the margins in which they do desire to provide some self-governance. So taken together, I would be very surprised if anything like these structured, mm-hmm. organized gangs were ever very prominent in uh, the Nordic system. It's so so one one parallel, and I, 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 it looks like Aaron might have had a question, but one sort of interesting takeaway that I have from that, you know, one, one argument you could make is that America's prison gang problem, so the violation of prisons is a byproduct of mass incarceration, that there are too many people, there needs to be some informal system. But then another, and th- this is how prison gangs emerge, but another argument is that in terms of resource constraints, our problem is, if not under incarceration, then a lack of sufficient carceral capacity, which is to say, 
you know, you, you, you could solve as many of our problems by building more prisons as you could by reducing the number of people in prisons. Just that, what, what do you make of that argument? I think that's where the logic of my argument would go. So in California, there's, you know, about 30 prisons and they each hold several thousand people. The, my argument, you know, followed through would be if you, if you built another hundred prisons, then the typical size of, of a prisoner would be much smaller and they wouldn't, the officials would be able to govern better in that situation. And to the extent that they didn't provide all of the governance, prisoners would tend to rely on these lower cost when effective decentralized norm-based system. So that is, that is sort of an implication mm-hmm. uh, that if we added, you know, four times as many prisons, I, I do think that would affect the way that the informal life of prisons operates. This is one of the things that California was sort of, well, sort of forced to do when their, their prison system was found to be in violation of the Eighth Amendment. They were forced to like move a bunch of people out of the prisons into the jail, into the county jail system because they were too overcrowded. And, you know, there's a big fight there over should we reduce the number of people in prisons or should we should we increase the capacity or how do we reduce capacity? Right. Uh, so I wanted to ask, you mentioned kind of offhandedly that in these Nordic countries, being a being a prison guard, working in a prison is often seen as like kind of a civic minded thing, like a public school teacher. Does that have anything to do with maybe the different ways in which those countries conceptualize the purpose and justification for punishment? I don't know the sociology on this, but I mean, do they tend to see being a prison guard as kind of almost analogous to being a school teacher in the sense that we are providing for sort of the moral rehabilitation of offenders, this kind of more progressive rehabilitative concept of justice? Or does the civic duty for them consist more in, no, we're, we're, we're here to ensure the smooth and efficient functioning of what is essentially a retributive institution? Or is it some kind of complicated mix of both? I think it's it's closer to the former in that they articulate a very strong rehabilitative mission and value system. Mm-hmm. They carry it out in practice as well. Like we see it in the programming that they have available and the resources that they provide. Mm-hmm. Most prison systems in the United States have a nod to rehabilitation, but I don't see the follow through in practice and that American prisons for the most mm-hmm. part don't strike me as very rehabilitative environments. But yeah, there's a cultural support for genuine rehabilitative efforts and corrections in the Nordic system that would not be supported by a large portion of Americans or or across Latin America. So there's a distinct cultural difference Uh, in the way that the Nordic prison system, and that sits a little uncomfortably on a podcast about institutions, because it's saying that institutions are important, but culture is really important too. And so comparisons across these countries becomes a little tricky when we start thinking about can we import ideas from the Nordic prison systems to the United States or not? I mean, the other thing that's interesting about it that, that I uh, think sits a little uncomfortably sort of along the, the left-right partisan divide in the United States is I, I think an implication of your argument is, as Charles says, that if we had more prisons, we'd have fewer problems and prisons would be better places, which I think cuts against some of this sort of like defund, abolish prisons rhetoric on the left. On the other hand, that the the Nordic model seems to show that that kind of increase in social spending would can go hand in hand with this kind of rehabilitative concept of justice 
that many of the people in the U.S. who support probably more prisons don't like, right? You know, I would imagine that the average, I, you know, it's more Republicans probably than Democrats who'd support, you know, a mass increase in funding for prisons. They would probably do so on this. The, the appeal would be, yeah, because, you know, we need these things to punish people. But this seems to suggest, right, that actually maybe the best thing to do would be to kind of say, combine this sort of progressive rehabilitative concept with justice of justice with much more aggressive social spending on prisons, or at least that that is one possibility that's kind of underexplored and theorized. Through formatories. Let me, let me actually pivot us, just, pivot us to sort of the other side of that dichotomy. In your book, you also write about some really fascinating stuff with prisons in Latin America, which appear to just sort of be like, you, you write a prison, I think it's in Ecuador, but I don't remember, where residents own their own cells. When there are when, are basically suburbs in the prison, there are like gated communities. So can you can you talk about how the American system compares to prisons in Mexico and across Latin America, what the differences are and what that can tell us about American prisons? Yeah, definitely. Can I maybe just speak to Aaron's? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. I, I think that, you know, the social science is that prisons are very low cost and effective at punishing people, but do very little to deter or rehabilitate. And some, from my perspective, reading the economics literature, a dollar spent on social programs or policing reduces crime through deterrence more than the use of prisons, because I think there's an emerging consensus that deterrence, which, which saves us the cost of punishment and the cost of the crime itself. So deterrence is like really important mm -hmm. for us. You know, prisons deter, but very poorly. The best deterrents are swift and certain and fair. And prisons are not swift. They're not certain. It's very unlikely if you'll go to prison. And the 20th year of incarceration only comes after 20 years. So as a deterrent, which is, I think, the best way to think about reducing the cost of crime, the tool of prisons is not a very effective one. So I would try to resolve that dichotomy by saying, look, you know, it's better to remove the cost of crime in the first place. We can invest in a variety of different social programs that I think through, you know, credible causal inference designs have been shown to reduce crime, one of those being police presence. So I, I would sort of take it a, mm -hmm. a way of maybe we just don't even, we're not getting what we really want from prisons in the first place. But going to Latin America, it's very interesting because across the region, officials provide very few resources, very few administrators who are very ineffective for the most part, and are sometimes totally absent from the interior of a prison. And so in my book, I discuss a, a prison in Bolivia where the guards essentially control the perimeter of who exits and leaves, but beyond that are, are rarely or never within the walls of the, of the prison itself. It's instead left to prisoners and prisoner mm -hmm. leaders, some of whom are democratically elected by other prisoners, to create a variety of different types of governance and social control on in terms of where you live and where, where you get your food, who, who makes decisions about whether we're going to have a sports events and the market that's going to exist within the prison. So, so in some places, many places really in Latin America, prison officials have just sort of relegated control of the interior of prisons to the prisoners themselves. You mentioned something interesting there about the democratic election in some of these prison gangs. And to what extent is the sort of legitimacy of these, these institutions such as it is predicated on a kind of Thrasymachian might makes right dynamic? To what extent is it predicated on a kind of pure self-interest? You should 
buy into the social contract because then we'll protect you. And then I think to what extent is it predicated on this kind of, I, I would say almost moral ideal of, of democracy? Because you see the prison leaders will kind of appeal to all three of these things at once, including this democratic idea that we, we might not associate with prisons. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. And with the caveat that there's huge variation across Latin America. Sure. And so some yeah. of these places have entrenched gangs. Others like this one in Bolivia, it's less based on gangs as we sort of typically conceive of them. I think democracy is a very practical tool to use mm -hmm. to organize socially. It's rhetorically powerful. You know, people are mm -hmm. coming in with sort of pre-existing values in, vaguely in favor right. of democracy right. and agreement. And, you know, when we interact with people outside of prisons in our places of work and our places of worship and our civil society organizations, we often turn to sort of simple majoritarianism and democracy because it, it helps find solutions. It helps mm -hmm. us come to decisions. So, uh, you know, it's, there's definitely a very much a practical aspect to it that, that I, I think shouldn't sort of be overlooked or, or underappreciated. Sure. Do you know if in less democratic countries, the prison sort of internal gangs or, or whatever the equivalent is, do they tend to appeal less to democracy and have less democratic structures? Like, is there any relationship there or is it kind of random? You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of my work, maybe all of it is based on prisons in democratic countries to varying degrees. There's not a lot of great uh, research on prisons in autocratic countries. I actually think that's like a huge unexplored area in yep. this literature that could write a dissertation or you know several books on it's just no you know mm. we haven't gotten to that yet also harder to get information out of them by definition because <laughs> there's less transparency i mean i, I you know i i, I want to ask i guess about lessons though from from low formal capacity prisons right if you have the the u.s system is big and cumbersome and depending on how you want to define it, underfunded or lacking in formal capacity for some other set of reasons, captured by unions, you name it. And and so we sort of redound to this standard of ruling, informal rule by inmates in a way that is different from, but related to self-rule in, in Latin America. So how, you know, across that, across the spectrum of low formal rule systems, who does it better and who does it worse? Where, you know, better and worse is like, the, the experience of prison or, you know, minimizes brutality or sort of minimizes the abuse, you know, the, the rule of the strong over the weak. Like what are the, what, what are the ways to make it work and what are the ways to not make it work? So I think there's no easy answers here. There's some really interesting research by Jennifer Pierce, who has a PhD from John Jay College, and she studied the Dominican Republic. And she's got a really interesting set of cases there because they have a sort of, quote, traditional Latin American style prison, one where prisoners are sort of left to govern uh, themselves and are, are the main actors involved. And they also try to transition to a system that was uh, more like a, quote, modern or, or Western prison, one where prison officers are present and play a much stronger role. So this is a brilliant case study to sort of look through this question. And she did a bunch of surveys across these different prison regimes. And she found a mixed response, which is that prisoners really liked it in the old traditional system because they were free to do what they want. Sometimes leaders were a little tyrannical and involved in, in, in more so than uh, any particular person would want. 
And that was too bad, but it was nice to have the freedom. But she also found that when people went to the more legitimate system, they were glad to not have the tyranny of other prisoners, but they were also subject to the tyranny of, of prison staff now. And so it's sort of not obvious that one system is sort of better across most or a broad range of characteristics when we think of like, what is the quality of the performance that a prison provides? Yeah, one, I, what, what I think is one of the ways that I think about the, the sociology of prisons or the sort of incentives in prisons is that like prison is by definition a low trust society. It's, it's composed of people who are by definition untrustworthy. And that leads to, it makes it much harder to have as you alluded to previously, governance by norms, it makes it much harder to expect people to sort of be able to engage in reciprocity to get along with one another, which begets that kind of abuse. And it seems like unless, you know, un unless you have that kind of uh, rule of law, you will have, you'll have abuse in one form or another. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's right to note that there's, you know, a selection bias that brings you know, certain people with certain disadvantaged backgrounds into prisons. The the sort of approach that I've taken is to is to is to assume that they're sort of proactive in shaping the environment in which they operate in. So I sort of go into studying prisons with the presumption that these people are in a very unusual environment, with very different constraints from those that you and I face on a regular basis. And so if they're doing something systematically and continually uh, that looks strange to us, we should presume that they're right about what they've come up with. And so the sort of rational choice institutional approach, I think, has the, the advantage of focusing on incarcerated people's, you know, sort of autonomy and agency in, in shaping the community that they live in. So I think it's sort of a tough case in that they come with very little capital, very little social capital, very little education. There, there's some trust issue, some law issue. And so sort of by comparisons of what our priors might have been, it seems like they're often pretty effective at responding to what is obviously a very difficult um, environment. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I think the sort of pivotal example that you write about in your work is of, of this idea of the sort of underlying rational order even in these sort of peculiar environments is, as Aaron alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, the sort of idea of a, of a prison gang constitution, that there can be, as, as, as you talked about, sort of an articulation of norms, an articulation of explicit rules that have been complied with. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice, how those, how those things form and how they function, how people regard their legitimacy? It varies a lot by gangs. So thinking about the California context, you know, one of the oldest prison gangs comprised of members from Northern California, Hispanic people, they, they have one that looks a lot like a political constitution. And it starts with appeals to human rights and the need to work together to support La Raza. And this is a document that's going to outline how we're going to accomplish those things. And then it goes through talking about the general of the group, the captains, the lieutenants, the members, and systems of checks and balances such that at each level on that hierarchy, if you feel like you've been treated poorly by someone above, there's different venues to file complaints to request that an election for a leadership position to be redone. There are ways in which you can sort of feed back through this political constitution and appreciation if you think things aren't working very well. There's been a lot of pushback and a lot of disagreement within gangs generally about how much these constitutions are actually followed. Of course, many political constitutions aren't followed very closely, so we can't assume that there's going to be sort of perfect enforcement just mm -hmm. because we write it down. They often require you know, other norms 
to go along with supporting sort of the formal rules in any body that's constituted in these ways. And there's also been evolution over time in that some of these gangs start with very clear constitutional structures, but over time they emerge from a sort of one leader with a hierarchy into a three to five person leadership table or body that works through consensus in different issues. So I think that many gangs in California have responded to things they've learned and problems they've faced over the last decades, and they've changed their rule structures um, in response to that. And so, for example, you know, it seems to be that if there are three or three to five sort of co-leaders in a particular housing area, that reduces the jockeying to be the one guy on top. It allows more people to have an influence and leadership. And it doesn't, it's less zero sum if there's more spots available. I think that's one sort of actually very effective pivot they've made in response to seeing that when there's usually one person who's on leadership on top, well, maybe we're going to spend a lot of time and energy fighting to see who gets to become that person. The other thing that this brings to mind is the concept of legibility. States need to make sure their populations are legible so they can govern and control them. And it seems like that concern is very much at play both in the written structure of these constitutions and in their practical operationalization in prisons. I mean, could you talk a little bit about how these prison gangs keep tabs on their members and on the economy and effectively make it legible, like the state makes legible its population. Yeah. So James Scott's seen like a state yeah. idea of how do we make the, the community legible? They do it in a few different ways. There are pretty well-established procedures for collecting information about new prisoners that arrive right. in a housing area. Uh, there's a particular person, usually a gang leader, who it's his job to seek out all new members, look at their official paperwork, sometimes give them a sort of survey of their own from the gang. Sometimes they solicit letters from gang leaders at other prisons to sort of certify who is this person? Are they who they, are they who they said they are? Are they did they commit the crimes they said they committed? And are they in good standing with you know gang members at another prison? They have lists of people who have violated gang rules in the past who should be assaulted according to their rules. So gang leaders will sort of compare information about new prisoners with this list to control essentially who's here and should they be punished for some gang rule they violated in the past. And one way that they're able to do that is also through the use of tattoos. So through different cultural things as well as street gang activity, many people who are incarcerated have mm -hmm. tattoos that provide very uh, credible clues about their identity. It might say what gang they're in. It might say what neighborhood they're from. It might say their street name. And when you take all these pieces together, you can know pretty well whether someone's from where they say they're from or not. Right. And you can often just simply read it off their body. Because these are tattoos, they're actually very credible signals because they're permanent. And you can't get the name of a street gang tattooed on you for some benefit. And then when those guys are around, hide the tattoo. So because yeah. it's very permanent, because, you know, there's not a ton of privacy in California prisons, those send a very credible signal about a person's identity that gangs are very happy to sort of make use of. Right. Just very briefly, one of the, yeah. one of the other really interesting points in the genre that you make is that part of the reason that gangs sort by race is it's like, it's, it's hard to fake race. It's hard to it like that, that. That's an immutable fe skin color is an immutable feature identity. And so I can know who's in and who's out just by looking at them in exactly the same way. Yeah. And, and, and obviously there's a lot of very prejudiced, racist, outright prejudiced, racist people in, in prison gangs, but 
the gangs are finding ways to operate in environments of strangers. If people weren't strangers, they wouldn't need the gangs, by my argument. They could rely on the, the reputation and the norms. And so it seems like ethnicity, race, play some signaling role in the context of someone new to prison, doesn't know who the players are, can already automatically know who to complain to if there's some conflict that happens. And this analysis also seems to apply to the Constitution itself being written down. Right. Because if it's designed to solve this problem, you know, where we don't actors don't have enough information for informal norms to work, it's telling to me that they go straight to a written constitution and don't attempt something like the British unwritten constitution. Right. Yeah, I think there's value in eliminating ambiguity and establishing common knowledge. So not just that new prisoners know what the rules are, but we know that he knows and he knows that we know that he knows and so Mm -hmm. forth. So in some, you know, some places in California, when a new prisoner arrives, depending on which group he's going to be a part of, he'll receive a set of written rules that he needs to memorize. And until he can essentially recite those to the gang leader, he's not allowed to associate or affiliate with that group out on the yard. And so in doing that, it's, it's establishing that we know you. We know that you know what your obligations are and you learned them from writing them down. We all created common knowledge and you telling them to us. And that establishes that later on down the line, you can't say, well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Or I didn't know I was supposed to pay a certain revenue of drug deals to the, to the gang leadership. Well, so, so I, and I think we're going to, we're going to sort of move to some closing thoughts in a second, but I guess to ask, you know, we, we, we like to, to the extent it's possible to get to, you know, solutions. We like to get towards that. And, and this has been more a conversation about how prisons work, how prisons govern themselves, and it has been about sort of the fundamental problems with prisons. But I guess I wonder, beyond sort of trying to minimize through a deterrence-focused strategy the population of prisons, how do you think we could improve the governance of American prisons? Are there steps that we can take? Are we sort of trapped in a bad local equilibrium? Are there, are there ways that Ameri- the governance of American prisons, either formal or informal, could be pushed to a better set of outcomes? Yeah, I mean... I don't think anyone would sit down and design the California prison system as an ideal. And, you know, from my perspective, this is a political process with a tight budget constraint, not a lot of popular support, but smaller prisons are safer. They're easier to control. They're less likely to cultivate the conditions that give rise to gangs. So that seems like, you know, the direction that we'd want to go. Unfortunately, Because of the history of mass incarceration, we've never had a huge decline in the prison populations that would provide any sort of natural experiment to know how effective that is. In my in my most recent book, I I compare California with England. They have 130 or so prisons there that tend to be very small. There's no thriving gang problem in most English prisons. I think that's a piece of evidence that smaller is better. and, And that's the sort of direction we can look. You know, prisons are very blunt tools. And they're very good at punishing people. And I just don't think they're that effective relative to alternatives for, for, for deterrence or for, or for rehabilitation. So I think diverting people from prisons into other, other, other situations or just deterring them from prison, period, is the way to look. You know, I, I guess in looking at prisons around the world, I, I've I, I sort of come to the conclusion that, you know, they just never really do what we say they do or want them to do. And we should seriously reconsider how much we rely on them. 
So I'm not a prison abolitionist, but we should incarcerate vastly, vastly, vastly fewer people in the United States. And I don't think we would see corresponding crime rises, especially if those resources were reallocated to things like more and better policing. Right. I would just I just want to note that, you know, this is, I think, a pretty common position maybe among academics who study this, but it's not commonly represented in the discourse that, yeah, we should incarcerate far fewer people. And part of how we do that is greatly increasing funding for the police, right? That that is that is not a popular position, even though it actually makes perfect sense, given what we know. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which there's a tension in the sort of abolitionist spirit and literature uh, that assumes yeah. that we should move the same direction on both. And, you know, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that, with, but I'm also a social scientist and the sort of economic work looking at police presence and crime is a very robust finding. And economists haven't done enough to note the social costs associated with harsh policing, and they haven't done enough to appreciate the things that we can't easily count in their studies, mm. but just as a simple hypothesis, counting numbers of police and numbers of crime, that's a pretty robust negative relationship. Mm. And mm. in terms of what it costs, it's it's not a bad deal. So I think there's a tension there and that some of my colleagues who are prison abolitionists think that's because it's not just prisons. We want to actually switch it into other things, policing and other social programs that seem to, to deter crime. Yeah. Charles, where, where does this leave you? Well, I, you know, I am... Uh, professionally a little more sympathetic to prisons. Although I, you know, I take, I take David's points and I agree that, you know, deterrence is the ideal, deterrence is the goal. To sort of make the brief case, my read the lit says that the marginal incapacitation is not good at deterrence, but the, 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 the marginal length of incapacitation, the marginal added of incapacitation does have some deterrent returns, which, which has suggested to me that you should reduce, you should incarcerate slightly fewer people on the margin but you should perhaps incarcerate them for longer. They're also incapacitated returns. That's a whole separate conversation. Um, but what I have to come away from this conversation with is, you know, I, I, I think I tend to think about prison as a mechanical sort of tool for punishment. I'm not necessarily persuaded it should be our best or only tool for punishment. There are lots of other things, lots of other traditions, practices that are worth exploring. But I tend to discount the sort of institutional components of prisons. And I am persuaded that and frankly, I think that there's potential room for sort of bipartisan agreement on, you know, we can reduce prison capacity. We can reduce the number of prison, maybe even 10 per 10, 20 percent. But there would be returns to, I think, generally pretty good returns to constructing more prisons, just flattening out the number of prisons, shifting people across prisons more, reducing overcrowding as a problem. I think is, is is something everyone in theory should be able to get behind. It seems like there are community safety returns to it in addition to sort of like you know, basically humanitarian concerns, which, you know, is, is, uh, is, is a powerful argument in my view is one, is one that I had not thought about before. So, you know, I'm, th- th- this is the first conversation I've had where I've come away understanding the arguments for emptying Rikers Island in New York and putting five prisons in the, four prisons in the main city. I'm still not on board with that plan for other reasons, uh, but it's an interesting case for it. Aaron, Aaron, what are your sort of, I guess, closing thoughts? Uh, yeah. So, 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 what what strikes me about this is, is there's there's a parallel not just between the structure of the state and the structure of prison gangs, but I think there's also a parallel between the genealogy of the state, the modern state, and the genealogy of prison gangs, which which is that you know 
you think about when the really the modern state starts to be constructed in Europe and like, I guess, sort of early Renaissance, you know, getting into the Enlightenment. It comes about at a time when Europe is getting more diverse in the sense that there's a kind of globalization. People are coming into contact with each other. There are different religions, clashes of values that cause kind of an old, you know, hegemonic moral theological consensus to break down. And, and then as a result of the resulting schisms, right, and violence, you get these modern Westphalian states that are designed to kind of protect people and the Westphalian states, you know, go to war with each other, but they do impose a modicum of order on Europe. And by the same token, you know, in these prisons, as there's more diversity and people come into contact with people who aren't like them, that's where you get these. And we should say the Westphalian states were kind of often based on national or, you know, common heritage, common characteristics. You get similar things with these sort of ethnic prison gangs. And and what I think is is striking about this parallel is it on once in one sense it makes me almost more respectful of prison gangs to see how you can even almost see them as like similar to you know the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War that I think that actually almost reflects well in some ways on prison gangs and it makes me think of them in more legitimate terms. On the other hand, I think it, it it should maybe tell us something sobering about the modern order, which is that it it is based on violence and on using violence to kind of manage the inevitable tensions that come with diversity. And we talk all about, you know, how great diversity and immigration is and how it's wonderful, the blah, 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 blah. But in reality, like these things create huge costs, they create violence, and a lot of the centralized coercive mechanisms that we have today that are decried are, are are just kind of inevitable consequences of this. And I don't think that's like an argument against the institutions exactly, but I think it should maybe make prevent us from sort of romanticizing too much what we have. Like there is a dark side to the modern liberal constitutional democracy. And I think in a weird way, this conversation kind of illustrates it with a very unorthodox foil. David, what, what do you think of all that? Um, I think it's very interesting. And, and, you know, you notice sort of tension or irony that I, that I've learned from the work as well. The, the initial, you know, hypothesis and framework is actually from Doug North's work on European state formation, where he Mm. offers a few hypotheses about populations and institutions that I test in a sort of out of sample way in the context of prisons. And it seems to have a lot of explanatory power. So I Mm. agree that there are similar dynamics sort of in play. You know, it, I think it's it's important not to understate the damage and the cost created by gangs um, in, in a variety of different ways. They undermine rehabilitation. There's no, you know, effective equality or rule of law between them. We're rewarding the most powerful and violent people um, with the most influence. And there's no robust systems of accountability. So I, I see all those strong negative mm. uh, marks for the gangs. And, you know, the problem of political development and state capacity is is this, which is that when states work really well, we use that capacity for the threat of violence, the the regulation of violence in a way and in institutions that allow us to benefit, enjoy the benefits of diversity and of bigger populations, right? More people, more diverse people, more opportunities for exchange. So when states work well, that's what they do, but it's really difficult. And in a lot of places, states don't accomplish that. So 
it's it's you know it's it's rarefied air to find states that can effectively govern large diverse communities for a sustained period of time. Yeah, I think that's a good point to sort of transition to to recommendations for our listeners. I will I will volunteer to go first and recommend. I, I will plug David's books. David can also plug his own books if you'd like to. But the Puzzle Prison Order is a recent. Gosh, when did it come out? I have this written down. It's 2020, 2020, actually. Yeah, 2020, yeah. It won a number of awards, awards in 2021. It was a great read. I learned a huge amount about international comparisons in prisons. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Aaron, do you have a recommendation? Yeah, I'm going to recommend those who found the kind of discussion about legitimacy in prisons interesting that they pick up a copy of Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia and read it all the way through because it really does have some parallels to to this. And I, I, I commend it for sort of two reasons, other reasons. One is it's just a very well put together philosophical book, even if you disagree with it. He's just a very smart thinker. This is all about social contract theory and how to justify a minimal libertarian state. And the other reason, though, I, I commend it to you is that I am not a libertarian, and I think it's a good lesson in how you can take a few maybe seemingly plausible philosophical premises and through sort of the pure aggressive application of reason, use them to justify all sorts of crazy things, including that we should let people sell themselves into slavery. And by the end of it, you're like, yeah, maybe we have to be careful of relying too much on reason to kind of construct these ideal, you know, idealized political theory models. So that's that's what I would recommend. David, do you want to uh, recommend either your own work or somebody else's work to our listeners or even both? Well, I mean, I like my work, so I <laughs> hope you'd like it too. But I'll, I'll say sort of two books that I really enjoyed in the last few years. One is called Kidnap Inside the Ransom Business. It's by Anya Shortland, who's an economist at King's College London. And it basically explains why this really tricky market of kidnap for ransom, which in theory shouldn't be able to exist, actually does exist and is very effective at bringing people home uh, safely, quickly, and more cheaply than any other alternatives that we have. And so that's a fun sort of economics of crime book. Uh, the other came out more recently is by Ruben Jonathan Miller. It's called Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration, that I think does a phenomenal job of pointing out all the peripheral harms of prison use and the sort of broader criminalization of what some people call the carceral state, which doesn't stop at the prison doors, but in fact follows people once they leave prisons and touches family and friends and communities uh, to substantial social, economic, and political costs. So halfway home, it's, it's part memoir, part social science, and a, a very compelling read and, and a very interesting take on what I think is the most important social problem in America today. David, is there anywhere you'd like our listeners to follow you on social media or otherwise or follow your work? I've got a webpage, davidscarvick.com, where I post pretty much all of my work is freely available and occasionally on Twitter at David Scarbeck. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous for making this podcast happen. Thank if you have questions, listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, want to send us to prison, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. Until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again. Bye.